Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a different time. Joe Haddo, and whether you're a regular listener, a sometimes listener, or a brand new listener, it's great to have you with us. My first guest today is a former Guardian journalist whose work also has appeared in Vogue and Vice, and is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Jog On, How Running Straight by Life. Here to tell us about her debut novel, How to Kill Your Family, it's Bella Mackie. Hello, welcome to you. Hi, thank you for having me, Joe. My pleasure. It's lovely and my second guest has a doctorate in social psychology and has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize here to tell us about her debut novel, Never Saw Me Coming. It's Vera Curry and welcome to you, Vera. Hi, thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you both here. It's lovely to be connecting the USA with, uh, well, London, I think. Bella, are you in London as yeah, well as me? Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. How is your London today? Uh, you know, I mean, pandemic cold, <laughs> you know, usual. Yeah. <laughs> Just the usual modern world now, yeah. What's happened here is, uh, well, this is what I think, is suddenly after these sunny days of, oh, we can all sit in a pub garden or we can go for a picnic, etc. it's like, where's that? jumper that I had a year ago because now I'm stepping out thinking that this is that summer's gone oh summer summer was never here we had two days where we were really grateful and everyone went a bit crazy and now <laughs> it's winter again suddenly we're all supposed to go into like sweaty you know condensation ridden you know tubes and pubs and I still just feel like oh get yeah. me out of there so yeah I'm going to be wearing jackets and sitting in the garden for the foreseeable I think oh me too me too. Yeah. I mean, I am. I am just just jacketing up yeah. and heading on out. I think yeah. I mean, no no amount of rain is going to stop me. Oh, the the rain is the one thing that will stop me. <laughs> That's we'll change those plans yeah. when it's raining. Born actually. and bred in this country, and still I cannot take it. Uh, and what about Washington? Are you in Washington D.C.? Yes. yes. How how is Washington? Uh, it's actually beautiful here. We we uh, yeah, transitioned yeah, from our hundred degree summer to our very beautiful fall, which um, we will have for quite a while. Sorry, I've lost my voice a bit. We had a launch party on Saturday, and I'm still. Do you know recovering. what's funny is in a year after a year of pandemic, is going to any kind of event now. I find I lose my voice really quickly. So I have you have my sympathies. The moment you start talking to a big group of people, all of a sudden you're like sort of rasping. Yeah, because we're not used to talking or interacting no, with human beings. Exactly. 
I, I honestly think I've forgotten how to do that bit because the other day I was at a, a wedding, which was most of it sort of outdoors, which was lovely. But the bit that was in a sort of tent when the you know the music was on and everything, I was going to go, yeah, so let, let me tell you about... <laughs> and I was just yelling at these people who were obviously thinking, dude, like you can just talk in your normal voice. No, because so they'll, be, they'll be thinking that too. It's fine. They'll also be thinking, oh my God, I can't do this. What am I doing? I mean, it's hilarious. But, I'm well, I'm glad the launch party went ahead, Vera. That's exciting. Yeah, well, we were supposed to have a, a bookstore event, which got cancelled because of Delta. And then I had my own little small party with, like, 20 of my closest friends. That's nice, though. That's what you want. That's all I wanted. I was happy with that. Well, excellent. We're going to talk about that book in fact both your books your new novels uh, over the next sort of 30 minutes or so we're going to talk about your writing we're going to find out what you've been reading and enjoying recently and of course we will do the book off where each of you is going to pitch us a book that you love that you think we should all read but um firstly two how to kill your family if i may bella now unusually this is a story in which we are rooting for a serial killer protagonist, Grace. Perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about her, set up this story for those that haven't got to the book yet. Yeah, so the story is about Grace, as you said, who is a young woman living in London, very near where I live, actually, um, coincidentally. <laughs> and she discovers that her father, basically, was her, her mother and father had a brief affair. She was the product of this brief affair. And then her father basically abandoned her mother emotionally and financially and left her mother to bring her up, you know, in very difficult circumstances. And her mother dies at a young age. And Grace decides that she is going to take revenge on her father, who is extremely wealthy. And he's a kind of billionaire, you know, head of head of industry and she thinks you've had this privileged wonderful life your family have never had to deal with anything and I'm going to take revenge on you and everyone that you love um and she decides this when she's a teenager and then she does in, she does indeed carry out her plans where I don't think I'm giving much away if I say she does go off to pick off different <laughs> members of her family before she you know the, has her eyes on the prize which is killing her father um and yeah there's lots of stuff that happens that happens along the way and i think when i when i describe it that simply it sounds like a kind of you know horror slash thriller but it's actually it's supposed to be funny and camp and sort of you know slightly ridiculous in some ways and a lot of it is kind of is satirical um and you know mainly it's about kind of the uber wealthy and and the role that men have in society and the power that they have um but yeah, you know, some some twists and turns happen along the way. So you know, you have to you have to read it to see what happens to you know to her father in the end. I love that, and a lovely little tease at the end there, just to make <laughs> sure that we all pick up the book. Um, I did. Lo- I love the comedy in it. I mean, it's sort of it's it's so funny throughout. And I wondered whilst reading it whether whether the humour came easily or if it was something that you had to really sort of think about putting into a story like this. Do you know what? The humour was the easiest bit for me because, <laughs> yeah, because I think in my life, you know, my family's motto is like everything for the story, everything to make you laugh, you know, even if it's a sort of severely traumatic event, you know, I'm sure that's very unhealthy, but that's just kind of who we are. And I think if you can't see the absurdities in kind of 
the uber wealthy and the middle class and the privilege and the kind of money and all of that then you know I think if you if you ignored the comedy in that it would be a it, it would be a boring story of just mm. kind of straightforward revenge for me is quite a masculine thing and I think actually you know it's not you know the Count of Monte Cristo is kind of a swashbuckling revenge story and this I wanted to be kind of more you know I don't want people to read it and be traumatized by murder I want them to kind of laugh alongside her finding mm. the whole thing slightly ridiculous um so no for me the humor was the easiest bit and the killings were the hardest bit right okay okay fine um and vera with with your book never saw me coming it's your your debut as well your debut novel i'm i'm right am i right in thinking you you had the idea for this book after seeing or reading about a behavioral study yeah, there is. A, there's a couple treatment facilities that um, for young adolescent boys with psychopathic tendencies and psychopathy is really difficult to treat. I'm sorry if you can hear a siren. That's just my life. So um, the this treatment facility uh, just tried to change things around and and put everything in terms of um, do this for your own self-interest rather than don't hit someone because it hurts them because they don't care because they don't have a conscience or empathy or you know don't hit them because you'll get in trouble because they don't feel fear it's don't hit them because then you get to a reward for 10 minutes so everything is put in terms of rewards because they are very reward driven but not necessarily people who are afraid of punishment because they also have a issue with being reckless and impulsive so um from that i kind of thought about well what if there was a school for people like this and then I thought that was a bit much, so I changed it to um, a panel study of seven psychopaths based at a university. And in the novel, we're introduced to, to Chloe, who's this legging-wearing first-year student who, to the untrained eye, is, you know, just the person next door, but is actually a diagnosed psychopath. So can you tell us, uh, for those that won't have got to this book yet, that a little bit about her and, and set up the story of your novel? Yeah, so she, she is coming into the program. She's a diagnosed psychopath. Really, the real reason she's at this particular college is that she wants to hunt down and kill a boy from her childhood who she believes wronged her within 60 days of uh, freshman orientation. What she doesn't know is that there is someone else on campus who is hunting down and killing the psychopaths one by one. And she attempts to work together with some of them to unravel the mystery all the while never dropping her most important goal, which is hunting down and killing this boy. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to, this is a question for both of you. Um, Bella, I'll start with you. And I know, I know this question will, will be different for both of you as well because of the style of each of these novels. But I wondered, Bella, where, at how and where did you decide to pitch the violence in it? Yeah, so I think for me, I've read, I mean, I've, I've, read, I've been reading true crime since I was kind of six or seven years old when my dad started reading me bedtime stories about true, true crime. Um, <laughs> seriously, that is genuinely true. He really? used to read me, yeah, he used to read me about like, you know, the Brides in the Bath murders and Dr. Crippen. And, you know, I, I literally grew up with, with bedtime stories about true crime. Um, and then I got myself a subscription to a true crime magazine. And so I've read true crime my whole life. And then there was a period in my 20s where I suddenly thought, a lot of this is really misogynistic, the coverage of this, and a lot of it is just women being victims where they're, you know, where all we were, all that we're asking for as readers is this gory detail about women being murdered. And I slightly got, I got sort of, I thought, what am I doing? Why am I indulging in this? What is the obsession with this? 
And then, you know, with the boom of true crime podcasts and Netflix shows and all of that kind of stuff, where, again, normally it is young woman, young white woman killed by man, you know, let's explore this horrible thing where she is just victim, like nameless, faceless victim. And the violence is the, is the key. And the, and the interest is all on the person that did it, right? So, again, I, fi- I find that really uncomfortable. And it's not to say that I'm not... Um, you know part of that it's not to say that I didn't I haven't watched those things it's just that I think there is something really uncomfortable about it so for me going into it I was really determined that the violence wouldn't be triggering it wouldn't be the point of the story it wouldn't be just kind of faceless victim female ex being murdered for you to be in to, for you to gasp at the horror of the murder yeah. um and again like it's not to say I don't enjoy that it's just that for some reason I wanted my book to to not have that that trauma for the reader, in a way, I, I I really wanted that to be the kind of secondary thing to the story and to the to the jokes of it and to the and to the motive actually. You know, the mm. motive was more important, and so for that reason, I chose comedic ways for them to die. So they're not, you know, they're not fully hilarious, but you know, someone dies in a sex club and someone dies from as you know an influencer gets a product that poisons her. You know, so the ways that they die are kind of ways in which you know you're not going to read it and be like, like this. You know, you're not going to cover your eyes. Yeah. Um, I did have a couple of people who got in touch with me before it came out and said, I really want to buy your book. But I'm I'm really traumatized by something X, and you know I don't want to I don't want to read something and be re-traumatized. And I felt quite confident that I wasn't going to do that to people. So while I still I still will read books about violence, I just that's just not the book I wanted to write. Sure. What about you, Vera? Yeah. So I'm someone who was born and raised on horror movies, and just like I'm very desensitized to like extreme <laughs> levels of violence. So you I mean, censor. Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, that was a great movie. Um, so I, I mean, I guess some people think that there's some gory parts in my book. I mean, my, my level for what I find frightening is, is really high. I think, I think that what I wanted to be true to is this is a character who doesn't feel empathy or sympathy for people. So, I mean, she's quite frank about things. There's a part where she's thinking about where should she murder this boy? What's the ideal location? She thinks about Rock Creek Park, which is a park in D.C. where people actually have been murdered, um, quite a few. She's like, well, I can't do it there because it's fall, and I want to set him on fire, and that'll cause a conflagration. And she just says this very flatly, and that's just kind of who she is. So, I mean, I think for some people it might, it might be a, a bit dark, um, but, you know, that's just... It's a dark book. That's really interesting, though, Vera, because, I mean, I think that my main character is... I don't. I wouldn't call her a psychopath, you know, because I think she does have some emotions, and I think it's more like a product of the damage that she's felt as a child. But I think it's really interesting that her monologue, your character, sort of says things like, you know, she's looking at the specifics, almost in a banal way of, you know, no, I want to murder them in the park, and that's not going to work, and she's looking at it quite matter-of-fact, because... My character is also like that, very like, how am I going to get this done? This is tiresome. You know, it's almost like a means to an end of killing rather than... And I wonder whether that's... I want, who knows? But I wonder whether that's a kind of female way of writing it. Because I often think when I've read male writers who write murder, it's like the point is the gore and the grizzle. And the, the point is the murder, you know, the, is the way the murder happens. Whereas the way you're describing it, she's writing it because she's like, I just, I just want this done. You know, I want this over with. And, um, and that's kind of how I was doing it as well. And I wonder if there is a difference of kind of those drawn out scenes where, you know, someone's skin is flayed off and it's made into a tea cosy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you think, 
wow, the, the whole thing is this, you know, rather than rather than this just being a point in the book, you know, I wonder about that. Yeah, that, it wasn't the point. And then th- this is someone who clearly thinks that committing this murder will will fix everything for her. And of course it won't. She's just not self-aware to know that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Thinking it will fix. It will be the, the thing that ends something before they can go and do something else. They need to get the revenge. They need to do the thing and then they can move on. And not being self-aware to understand that that's not how it works. <laughs> and I imagine, Vera, that you you brought a lot of knowledge and, and, and experience into the characters of this book, right, from your studying. Yeah, so um, my background is... So I didn't study uh, psychopathy. I studied um, politics and you know ideology and that sort of stuff. So similar. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, be- because I had a research background, I was capable of reading like real scientific studies about this. So I did do quite a bit of research. And then the setting of the story is embedded within a psychology department. So the way studies are run, and then there's a lot of, um, the psychopaths come in to do different surveys and experiments. And all of those are very classic social psychology studies. So they're, it's, it's fun if you have any background in psychology to see, well, how would a psychopath respond in you know, the prisoner's dilemma or one of these other classic studies? So um, there's quite a bit of psychology baked into it. And for you, Bella, because obviously you, you wrote um, a nonfiction book a few years back, Jog On, which I, which I referenced. In terms of writing this one, very different book obviously completely different in, in terms of its genre but how did you find the writing experience differed uh, for better or for worse for this novel yeah i i think i really enjoyed it because with jog on because it was non-fiction and because i really didn't want to just write my own story you know i remember yeah. i had a really good editor whose first thing he said to me when we signed the book was remember that you're not that interesting i you know <laughs> you're 32 you're a middle-class white girl from London, like, you're not that interesting, which was completely true, and it was brilliant, because it meant that I incorporated loads of other stories and loads of research, and so it wasn't just a kind of, and this is my life, you know. But because of that, it meant that I, fe- I really felt a responsibility to kind of get it right, get the facts right, be inclusive, be yeah. kind of not spread misinformation or bullcrap or peddle kind of false promises. So it it, it weighed heavily on me, that that sort of responsibility to get that right and so obviously then writing fiction where it was just completely fantastical nonsense from my head was like really relief it was a relief and really freeing in that you know I didn't have to kind of balance anything or get statistics right or be factual or you know be kind I just had to you know I could write kind of the worst basis things that were coming into my head with this kind of complete freedom so so that was really freeing and fun for me. I mean, obviously, there is the other part of that, which is, you know, have I got the imagination to write a story? You know, am I good enough to write fiction, you know, that someone wants to read without kind of going, oh, this person can't write a good book. But, you know, but otherwise, I, I just found it really fun and a lot less work in a way. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I think I've spoken to to quite a few authors who've, who've, who've written, you know, both non-fiction and fiction, and it, it can swing 
not only both ways between you know whoever the author is but actually between if they've written more than one non-fiction or more than one fiction i think there's like sometimes it's you know they go this book nearly killed me right mm. but then this book was just a because i was like i was just in the moment or is the zone or is the right time to write it so it's just, yeah, I think it's just it's, interesting i think it's really difficult to swing from one to the other and very obviously you've done lots of you know non-fiction kind of study and all of that kind of you're talking about you know you want you have a brain that understands those kind of scientific papers that you can read them and stuff and then to switch into another format is it's quite an unsettling thing to do you know you have to kind of retrain your brain but I don't know what you found Vera whether you found it kind of freeing or whether you found it difficult I always found this like strong separation between like the science part of my brain and then the creative part because I was always doing psychology like as my career and then I had this side hobby of of writing and then this book like a little bit combined them but um I mean, the creativity I find like very freeing to be like, well, I can write about whatever I want and, and make up stuff. <laughs> but did you do you feel a responsibility to kind of get you know get the facts about kind of psychopathy and studies and all that kind of stuff? Bang on. Yeah, I mean, I I really wanted to get it right because I think especially now people, if anything is misrepresented, it's it's viewed at you know very negatively. But I also like well, if there's a real reality, write about the real reality. It was so it was important to me that. I get the psychopathy right, but every single psychopath in the book is different. And I do think it is kind of handled sensitively where you're like, you know, Chloe is this ridiculous character, but you can also kind of see through it to see like there were real limitations to to her life because of because of this diagnosis. There are also some advantages, but um, I wanted that to be clear um, to the reader that, you know, I do kind of know what I'm talking about with this. <laughs> yeah. And it comes across, and I mean that in a really positive way. You know, it's not like not not saying it reads like research, but yeah, I think that really comes across from from your writing. Um, I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading recently and enjoying, and by recently, I mean I mean any anything really in the last year. Um, is there something that sticks out, or a couple of things that stick out for you, Vera, that you've enjoyed that you want to just mention? Yeah, I just finished um, Megan Nolan's novel Acts of Desperation which uh, I met her because she is also published by Vintage in the UK, who's my UK publisher. And I was just like blown away by this book. It's, it's a book about the ways in which women kind of annihilate themselves for relationships with men who are rather crappy. But it's, it goes a level beyond that. It is not just, it's not a book about female victimhood, but the ways that both the, part, the male partner and her are contributing to this very unhealthy relationship. It's such an intelligent book that I, as soon as I finished, I was texting various women I know to be like, you have to read this book. Um, it's so good. And she's very young and I'm very jealous. And <laughs> can she please be my friend? <laughs> is that a, that's, a, that's a call out, is it? On this <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> uh, that sounds brilliant. What about, what about you, Bella? Yeah, that's funny, actually, because I also read um, Megan's book and thought it was fantastic. And I had exactly the same reaction, which is she's very young and I'm very jealous. And I'm very upset that she has written this brilliant book so young. And it reminded me of lots of my relationships in my 20s of just that thing of annihilating yourself for men, men who are rubbish, you know, and what that does to you. Um, so, yeah, I agree with Vera. I thought it was amazing. I also read um, I read the whole shortlist of the Women's Prize and I thought all oh, yeah. the books were amazing. Um 
I read them because I had to do a podcast for two of them and I thought I had to read all of them and I panicked and then it turned out I only had to read two <laughs> but I was very glad because it meant I got to read amazing books um, and I thought they were all amazing um, How the One-Armed Woman Sweeps Her House I thought was fantastic um, quite traumatic just a warning it's not a beach read um, I thought Piranesi was one of my best books of the year um, mm. it will just stick in my head and that eventually was the winner and I just I just loved it I just absolutely loved it and then um, the other book I read which was a bit of a throwback but I read it on the beach um, was um, The Chamomile Lawn by Mary Wesley um, which you know I'm not sure how well known it is I these don't know days. yeah so it's a book set in the um, set in the war in the second world war and it's about a sort of family of cousins and but it's what it's actually about is repression and sex so it's about it's actually about Mary Wesley's life during the war she says and it's basically about how they use that time of fear and and you know anxiety and tragedy and they use that in lots of ways and one of those ways was this kind of bed hopping you know clinging to any body literally body that you could Mm. find um and taking comfort in that and it was quite scandalous i think at the time but this idea of sex in sex and repression i found really fascinating yeah yeah and that um that was called what again it's called the chamomile lawn the chamomile yeah there's a very good channel 4 adaptation from the 90s if you're interested in if you're interested in period adaptations with a lot of with a lot of bonking yeah that's yeah count me in (laughs) i'll sign up (laughs) Um, And I know you've mentioned it already, Vera, because you're a big film fan, certainly a a big horror film fan from your childhood days. I mean, it sounds like both of you had sort of exposure to some pretty gruesome stuff at an early age. Um, There seems to have been, I mentioned Censor, there's the sort of uh, the the new Candyman that's that's just come out. I, I I watched. Uh, in fact, it's not it's not a horror, but I, it, it's relevant because I I just watched a, a screener of something coming out, which is about uh, T- Ted Bundy. Um, there's there's sort of a there's quite a a resurgence in horror. It would seem to me. Uh, do, would you agree? And is that is that just something that comes around every few years that we see it and it goes, or or is is something sort of attracting us to want this and filmmakers to make them? I think it's, I think, I don't think it's something that comes around periodically. I do think something new is happening, which is this prestige horror thing. And I, it's, it's ridiculous because horror movies consistently bring in millions of dollars at the box office. Like the, the opening for it chapter one was what the largest opening for a horror movie ever. It made like a hundred million dollars, something crazy. And it's always been this cash cow that's never taken seriously when I think it should. So I'm, I'm very excited about this like prestige horror thing and now they're coming out with kind of a more literary horror movies like the witch or hereditary which i love i love a terrible slasher movie but like i really like that these intelligent (laughs) horror movies are you know kind of have more to say and they're beautifully filmed and beautifully acted and scored um i'm really excited i mean all the ones that people talk about i'm excited to go see Jordan Peele's done a lot, hasn't he? I mean, Jordan Peele yes. has sort of been the kind of pusher in the last couple of years of kind of making yeah. brilliant horror films, I guess. I think people keep trying to capture that, specifically the the discussion of race stuff, and like some have yeah. not quite hit it as well. And then A24 and those folks are, are doing good stuff. I think also there's probably a pandemic vibe, isn't there? I mean, when yeah. the pandemic started, everyone was watching things like Contagion and, you know, I guess... Yeah. You're Which sort I of... just didn't get. I mean, like, who would... Why did you want to go and watch that? You for weeks. Just... For weeks, that was number one. And every time I saw it, I was just like, 
please stop, stop watching this stuff. But I think there is that thing of when you're in a scary situation, being scared by other is yes. kind of in a way comforting, isn't it? I mean, I watched, um, I don't know what you think, Vera, of, I watched The Descent last night. Oh, I Have love that movie. Right. And there's something about it being a female cast, you know, of, so it's just women in this kind of, and the first half, there's no, there's no supernatural thing to it. It's just kind of, it could be a film in itself. And I, I hadn't watched horror for ages and I sat there while I was cooking dinner, just watching it, thinking this is great, you know, being sort of really freaked out by something, but also just women. I just, I love The Descent. Oh, that's my recommendation. And the, the scariest part of that movie is not the creatures. There's a part where a woman has to cross a chasm using only her hands. <laughs> and they have the upper body strength. Yeah. So I would just die. Yeah, the scary thing is not having the upper body strength to yeah. cross the chasm. Yeah. As we all reach for the 7.5s to try and do a bit more arm work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for those recommendations, both film and books. They're, they're fab. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's really interesting, Rui. I think you're right. The, the, there's this sort of literary horror sweep at the moment, which I think is, 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 is what I've been noticing. And I'm, I'm quite excited for it, too. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's time now for the book off. And this is where each of you is going to tell us about a book you love that you think we should all read and why. You've got three minutes to do so uninterrupted. You don't have to use those three minutes if you don't want to. But if you're still talking after the three minute mark, I'm either going to be ringing you out with the school bell or honking you out with the bicycle horn. So, um, Bella, would you like to be uh, rung out or honked out at your three minute mark? Oh, interesting. Uh, rung out, I think. The school bell for you. Okay, yeah. Very good. Uh, and Vera, would you like to go first or second? Uh, first? <laughs> very good. Step I'm glad up. about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just before we start the timer, why don't you tell us uh, what book you're putting forward? Uh, this is Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. Oh, the fabulous David Mitchell. Right. Well, this. 
three minutes on the clock then, uninterrupted for you to tell us all about Cloud Atlas. Over to you. Okay, so Cloud Atlas is the only book I've ever read where I got to the last sentence and then immediately turned it back and started to reread it. Uh, and I have reread it since then. It's actually a collection of six semi-connected novellas, uh, most of which are cut in half and sandwiched around a center novella. They are all written in a completely different style. Uh, the first is a 19th century tale um, on a ship where the, the prose is very purple. You can just feel a guy writing it with a quill. The second one is a series of letters from a young musician to his lover. The third is a thriller set in um, the U.S. in the 1970s. The fourth is this like kind of delightful comedy about this curmudgeonly uh, vanity publisher escaping from an evil nursing home, and it's just so funny and delightful. Um, the fifth is a very dark science fiction story about um, essentially androids becoming sentient and realizing that they are being used for labor and uh, even worse things. And the last is a post-post-post-apocalyptic um, story that occurs in the world after this science fiction world has since been destroyed. And it's written in this sort of um, slang, in this weird futuristic patois, but people are living in a very basic uh, existence. Um, and they're all sandwiched around. Each novella is cut in half and sandwiched around that the, the very last one. And there is this thread line of there's a theme um, that goes between all of the novellas. There's some hint that there's a, a character who's reincarnated, but the point isn't the connection between them in a literal sense, but the, the thematic content. And it's, it's such a big, bold, daring novel in a time where a lot of literary fiction is about small things. It's just sprawling and beautifully written and different genres and all different styles. Um, it shows his versatility in the way that he writes. It was a short, shortlisted for the Ben Booker. I mean, in my opinion, it should have won. But um, yeah, I think I can stop there. I think I've made my pitch. I'll give you one of those anyway. Uh, brilliant. Well, you did it in two and a half minutes. So, you, you know, you just, that's brilliant. You just brought it in. No Honestly, need to carry on. I'm going to go and buy that this afternoon because that's the, it's not a book that I've read and I've Bella, always felt like I've missed out on you it. You are going to love, you treat yourself treat mm. yourself it is wonderful because i love um, david mitchell but i've just i've always it's one of those things that you know when you sort of feel like oh that's passed me by now it's too late but you sold that so well <laughs> wow they well there you go hey sold it it sold it to Bella already we'll come back and just talk a little bit more about it vera in in a few minutes but you can have a little breather now because i'm going to put three minutes back on the clock uh, and just before i start bella tell us the the book that you're putting forward for the book off so the book i'm going to put forward is um the light years by elizabeth jane howard Fantastic. It's over to you then. Three minutes on the clock to tell us about The Light Years. So I'm sort of cheating when I say that it's one book because it's actually five. Um, it's a, it's the Chronicles. It's They're called the Cazalet Chronicles. Um, and she wrote five books, Elizabeth Jane Howard, about this family, this family saga. And I think partly I picked it because... Elizabeth Jane Howard was the most fantastic writer, but she was married to Kingsley Amos. And I think she slightly got overlooked by the fact that she was married to this huge literary figure, Kingsley Amos, and that her stepson was Martin Amos. And so I think slightly, she got slightly in her own time, slightly overlooked by these kind of titans of writing, these male titans of writing. And she's had a bit of a resurgence. Um, and I read them when I was younger, the, the Light Years and the Casale Chronicles. And 
I thought, oh, they're quite like gentle, you know, again, a little bit like the chamomile lawn. They're set during the war, the beginning of the war up to 1956. And so it's a kind of decade period of, of their lives just over. And, um, and I remember thinking, oh, they're quite gentle. They're quite, you know, it's a nice story about a family. And then I reread them last year at the start of the pandemic, looking for comfort. And I didn't really find it in the Cazalet Chronicles because they're actually quite traumatic and I'd sort of forgotten that. And so it's about this family and what happens and there's lots of tragedy and there's, you know, abuse and death. And so all of these things are happening to this family. So it's not this kind of gentle war story that I think some people imagine that it is a kind of Enid Blyton book. It's actually a very serious book about family and relationships and love and loss and and she writes about it with such a sharp eye about you know there's such a truth to the way she writes these these characters and these relationships in within a family between you know uncles and cousins and grandparents and even though you know they they live in a world of privilege you know they are beset by all the kind of issues that you or I might experience and I, I guess I read it just and it comforted me a little bit because it, it reminded me of, you know, the love between families, the bonds between families when I couldn't, at a time when I couldn't see my family, obviously, because we were all in quarantine. You know, it's it's set during the war, which is a very different setting, but it is set, you know, through a time of real struggle. And her writing just elevates it because a lot of people sort of say, oh, you know, that it's the sort of no plot for the first kind of, you know, first book. There's not, it's quite slow going. But actually, that's the kind of beauty of it is is that you the characters unfurl themselves and you get to know them literally over you know over a decade of their lives. They're, some of them start off as children and they're adults. And I guess I, all I can say is that she's just a phenomenal writer about relationships and family. And if you're interested in that kind of dynamic between characters, I'm not sure I've read a better study of of love and bonds between people than the Light Years Chronicles, the Casale Chronicles. So that would be my pitch. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, with well, four four seconds to go. So you you both brought it in before the time, but I thought I'd just you know ring the bell anyway. Fabulous! I don't know that book, Bella, and I I loved that pitch. So um, I want to come talk about it with you very briefly. To go back to Cloud Atlas, though, Vera, if I may, um, by the fabulous David Mitchell, who um, has not only been on this podcast, but is uh, someone I can, uh, I'm very proud to call a friend. And therefore, I'm obviously very biased to uh, anyone who uh, picks a David Mitchell book, <laughs> uh, because I just think he's one of the most wonderful writers. What what it did hearing you talk about it then which and it's had this sort of effect on on Bella as well is is made me want to go and reread it um I love the fact that it's one of the only books that having finished the last sentence you literally turn to the beginning again which you know how often does that ever happen if you remember the the last sentence it's what is the sea but a multitude of drops I, I remember that it was like 15 years since that book since I last read that book wow. I think yeah I mean it's it is an incredible novel. It's an incredible piece of work, and you alluded to that. It's it's bold. It's a big book. It and and it shows his versatility as a writer because of those styles that you mentioned. Being the novellas in a there's a sci-fi one. There's a uh, thriller. It, I mean, it's so funny. The historical one seems so accurate. Um, I just yeah, I love that book. So I, I hearing you talk about it made me think yeah i need to go and read it again it's been years for me as well since i first read it so um and the film just never did it oh for me the film either, is awful you know? yeah um oh, and a lot of it didn't I, happen yeah because when i've spoken about 
him before as an author, David Mitchell as an author, and then specifically this book. And people have gone, oh yeah, um, oh, I, th- I watched the film, and I don't, and I'm like, but dude, you did, like read the book, don't, you know, don't don't take that anyway. Uh, so Bella's going to go out and, and and buy that anyway, and hopefully we'll we'll enjoy it. So thank you for that pitch. And yeah, I I didn't know of the Light Years Bella at all, and. I love how right at the beginning you just snuck in that it's actually five books, but that was very clever. Yeah, you, you don't very have to clever. read all five. You know, you can start slowly. <laughs> but the, this idea that books, you know, that the, a story unfolds in mm. its own time, you know, so that you do get to learn and know these characters for over a decade, like you said, that's that's rarer now, I think, in fiction. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in my book, I really push the kind of idea of twists and pace and, you know, throwing the reader a kind of a bone at the end of every chapter. And she doesn't do that. She doesn't have to do that. You know, there are things that are touched on in this book where, you know, there's things like incest or or death, right, that can be touched on for literally two pages and then mm. she moves on because she's not trying to hook you in with kind of grabby stuff that will kind of traumatise you or shock you. She's just talking about things that have happened in a family and then she mm. sort of because she's got the skill as a writer, they don't have to be these kind of big, splashy things because that's not the point of the story. It's a family saga in the same way that with any family, you know, big, terrible things happen, small things happen, lovely things happen. They don't, they're not the dominant thing for, for the whole time. Mm. I think what's interesting is that because, I, you know, along with the same, you know, we love horror films, there's also always an obsession with period dramas, right? With kind of anything from 50 years ago and before. And, you know, I hate... Downton Abbey with like a fire in my heart right uh apologies to any big fans that are listening but you know for me that that schlocky thing about you know the middle the upper classes being sort of wonderful and and comforting and lovely and that you know we should all just admire them is just grim for me so I think you could see the light years and think oh a lovely you know gentle period drama and it's not that you know it's not Downton Abbey um I think it's important to say that um it really is a story about kind of the, the the sort of tragedies and small small tragedies large tragedies things that happen in a family but as you say like rolling over she she yeah. has the kind of space to to pull that out over you know over over a decade and um and there's something about that i guess you might see something similar in like hillary mantel being able to write cromwell over three books you know and not having to kind of pack it all in you know i think only only the rarest authors can do that though and hold your attention yeah and she really does that and i think it's she, as, as I say, I think she has sort of been pushed more to the fore in recent years, Elizabeth Jane Howard. But I think it's really worth going back and exploring her books because she, she was phenomenal, phenomenally mm. talented at writing. And you know, being being married to Kingsley Amos, as you said, you know, that's at a time when when she was writing as well. And I, I guess that yeah, there yeah. Was, and I think there, the other, you know, there was a snobbery around yeah. you know the fact that she was writing a family story, yeah. you know, a book sure about was, families. Yeah. And obviously, if you're a woman married to Kingsley Amos. No one's going to, you know, it's that thing at a dinner party when everyone's just sort of looking over your shoulder to try and get at your husband, you know. Yeah. So I think for that reason, you know, I really like to kind of bang on about her because I just think it's she's wonderful. And I think there was a snobbery about a woman writing about women, you know, writing yeah. about families. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't gauge your reaction there, Vera, when when Bella sort of just slagged off Downton. I, did, I couldn't tell if it was in in support or or whether you were really shocked. <laughs> You know, it might be, this might be a kind of a, the way Americans look at that show might be really different than Brits, although like, you know, for us, it's looking at a beautiful house and and clothes 
and yeah. th I, there definitely is a sort of thing where they view themselves we treat our servants so well and like but that that whole historical background is something that we just like don't have here so i mean when when we're watching period dramas there's there's a certain type of delight that i think is is possibly about a fictional world that never actually existed. I would like to be able to watch it like that, by the way. I think that's the best way of watching it, is to be like, we don't have your insane class structure, so we're just gonna watch this and enjoy the dresses <laughs> and the house. But it's like, if you actually live in a country that does still have an insane, where there are still literally people living like in those castles, and you think, yeah, this isn't history. This is like still happening. Yeah. Then I think it's a bit bonkers to be like, oh, isn't it so nice that they give their, like they don't beat their servants. They're so lovely. And you're like, oh no, that's still a thing though. That's, that's mental. So yeah, I find it just quite disconcerting. Yeah. So I think for, from my point of view as well, Bella, it was very important that you made that distinction when talking about Elizabeth Jane Hale's yeah. book. Um, I think that well, should be the blurb for her. It's not yeah, well, Downton Abbey. Why do we we should get you to to write a sort of an updated forward perhaps or something you know like an intro to the to the publishing. <laughs> um, oh, it was it, it's so good to hear about both of these books. Um, one I know very well, one I don't, and I mean it's, it's almost impossible to choose, obviously. Um, and Vera, I think you know, I think so many people have read Cloud Atlas and maybe and one other is going to now thanks to your pitch. Um, but do you know what I'm? I'm going to give Elizabeth Jane Howard a bit of recognition here. I think I'm going to pick the light years. Uh, simply because I, it sounds like she needs to be read a bit more celebrated. widely and this story yeah. needs to yeah. be known. Yeah, like, I think celebrated. David Mitchell is doing so well. Like, he's, <laughs> he's okay. Well. He's okay, yeah. So, like, you know, let's give Elizabeth Jane Howard, like, a bit more... Mm. And also, you know, it was a great pitch, Bella, as well, and, and I, you really sold it to me. And I think the payoff here is that, you know... You're going to go and read Cloud Atlas, which we both, me and Vera, both hope that you love as much as us. Oh, I am. I'm, li I'm literally going to go and buy it this afternoon. Like, right now, I'm going to go across the road. Oh, you, honestly, I think choose choose the right time to start it. Oh, okay. So as what's in, the right time? Well, when have, you, when have you got a bit of time? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got to write my next book, so I'm going to do yeah. that now because that's... <laughs> I'm not going to write the next book, am I? I'm just going to procrastinate for another six months. So course now. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah. But Vera, I'm going to read your book because I am so fascinated by the idea of psychopaths going around killing each other. I just think it sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I, also going to start that one. And I started yours and I was like, oh, I think this girl would get along with my main character. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. In some yeah. horrifying crossover, like that they would get on and we'd be absolutely terrified. <laughs> and what are you both working on next? I know that's a... Classic question of uh, of, a, of an interview, especially when a new book has just come out and we've talked about it, and then someone goes, "Oh, and what's next?" But um, I know I know that you you are both writing, I believe, something else. Yes, what's new for you, Vera? Uh, are we I'm to working know? on. I is it a horror novel or a mystery? It's kind of hard to tell, but it's um it's a deep homage to Stephen King's It. It's about a um, a group of 15 year olds in 1995 which is when I was 15 who um, witness a kind of a horrifying group murder and uh, there's a mystery surrounding it they end up killing someone in self-defense and then 20 years later they have to go back to that hometown because the man they killed is apparently still alive whoa you're very good that. at selling stuff. You should. <laughs> I got my ad. That copy. was a good. That was a good line that me and Bella both just looked up. We we're like, "Whoa, okay, that sounds fabulous." 
and uh, what about you, Bella? What are you working on next, or what will you be working on after procrastinating and reading Cloud Atlas? I mean, I'm writing another book, but like TBD. Um, I have like three ideas on a piece of paper. I've written like sort of vague outlines. I can't do it. That's like, no, that's an doing. exciting. But that's like a that surely is isn't. It? Yeah, it feels rubbish. Like Vera's just out there with her like whole plot of what she's doing, and I'm just sitting here like. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I have some ideas. It's, you know, technically it's supposed to come out in 2023. Maybe I'll have done it by then. I don't know. Loads I of time. Know. Loads of time. Ah! I find, I mean, I, I like I like a walk. That's my thing for when when ideas are buzzing or when you need mm. to try to focus in on one thing or even just not think about it at all. Uh, I go for a, for a nice long walk and I imagine maybe you go for a nice long run, Bella, just to like... Let... Yeah, I do all of that stuff and it's just not coming. Not I'm just... <laughs> I've got to like, say there that, that it's like feast or famine where I'll, I'll do a ton of writing and then for six months I'm just watching trash TV yeah. and not doing yeah. anything. And that's fine. I that's just, my process. Yeah, I just feel so redundant. I'm just sitting around the house like, like a sloth while my husband goes to work being like, I don't know, like I tidy the kitchen and he's like, are you going to do anything today? And I'm like, mm-hmm. tidy the kitchen. <laughs> it's all part of it though because whilst you might look at it as like, oh, I didn't do anything today because I was like, it's all happening. It's well, you're very, yeah. you're very positive. I, just, I also think there's a real thing about, I don't know about you, Vera, but I feel real slumps after I write books emotionally, where I feel, yeah. <laughs> I say that as if I've written 100 books, I've written two. <laughs> but like both times afterwards, I felt super anxious and kind of like low mood for like a good six weeks afterwards of just like, uh you know, I've like, had this this week where I I I had tons of anxiety. Like I have to go to the doctor because like maybe I have heartburn, and I'm preparing. I have, for ter- what, I have well, terrible yeah. heartburn. I think it's kind of going to be like a postpartum depression. Yeah, then, it is. It feels like it'll that. get better, but it yeah. does feel like a lot of. And then it came out, and then now it's like yeah, and it's recovered. out of your hands, and there's nothing you can do about it anymore. That it's just out in the world, and and then you're like, I have nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. I think we. we Weirdly, people sort of sit there congratulating you, like, oh, your book's out, you must feel amazing. And I'm always like, no, I feel terrible. Yeah, I feel awful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> it's a long hangover. Yeah, and then six months later, you look back and you're like, Hey, I wrote a book. It's nice. You know, that's a nice thing. But it takes a while to sort of enjoy it, I think. So, yeah, yeah. I'm sort of in that place at the moment. Well, I hope, I, I'm sure, I'm almost certain that the right idea will come, Bella, and, and we'll be reading it in 2023. But for so now... If you have any uh, ideas for me, uh, yeah, okay, me, give yeah. me a call. <laughs> 
But for now, we can enjoy How to Kill Your Family, which is out by Bella Mackey, and it's published by Borough Press. And Never Saw Me Coming by Vera Curian is also out now, published by Harvel Secker over here in the UK. It's been lovely having you both on the podcast. Thank you so much for your recommendations, for telling us about these fabulous books, and I hope that we can do it in person again next time. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you, guys. Cheers.